Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and uh, what an honor it is um, to bring in a, a guy who has been creating musical vocabulary on the bandstand for about the last half century and continues to do so, uh, searching for his individual sound and knowing that the journey of music is the forever journey. Mike Stern, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you, bro. appreciate you uh, and your patience, because I know... We've been hitting and missing in terms of doing this interview. Well, no, I mean, all good things and all good time, my friend. You know, I just, I wanted to ask you something about um, your own opinion. I remember interviewing uh, Gene Perla, and he was talking about a conversation that he was having with Dave Liebman about the fact that as it relates to musical vocabulary or new musical vocabulary, everything's been done. At this point, uh, there's nowhere else to go other than bringing in uh, instruments known in one genre, maybe into another. Um, I mean, there are certain things you can do to adjust on the bandstand, but I, I wanted to ask you about how to create new musical vocabulary when technology has so far sur surpassed the human heart and humanity. You know, to me... Uh, uh, I'm not. I'm not a big, huge one to to just do something different for different sake. You know what I mean? Totally. I mean, so certain things are just, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's like saying, "Well, let's find a new way," uh, you know, to to express love. You know, uh, you know, it's been working for years, basically the same way or the same few ways that people people express love in all kinds of different ways. But but nothing brand new like, wow, boy, that's interesting. You know what I mean? It's just not uh, it's not, you know, and so so music just transcends that to me sometimes the older stuff is just as fresh as it was made yesterday or will be just as fresh a hundred years from now so uh so that that's the way i feel about that i mean and having said that there's a whole lot of new uh you know combinations of stuff i mean jazz itself is it's a very over, oversimplified thing to say but jazz is really you know, I've heard this said, and it makes sense. It's a combination of African rhythm and uh, and, and and rhythms and 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 European harmony. So it's kind of a fusion in right right away. Even just what they what people refer to as just straight ahead jazz. It's it's kind of already a fusion. There's a ton of stuff happening now in terms of combining different elements from different like world music combined with jazz and and classical more classical music combined you know there's just a ton of new uh, combinations but the essence is the same it's really about uh, you know to me it's just a positive positive thing so i i'm, I'm i can you know sometimes more complex stuff uh which I love a lot of times, but sometimes something incredibly simple can get my heart just as, as strong as, as something that's... I know. love it. No, I love it, man. I mean, but did you... Were you in the combat zone in Boston gigging when you were at Berkeley? 
No, I was uh, well. There was this little place called Michael's Jazz Club, and uh, and, and it was on the uh, in, on Gainesborough Street. And a lot of students would play there. And then there was also when I then I I got a gig with Blood Sweat and Tears, so I didn't even finish Berkeley. And, and Pat Metheny actually recommended me for the audition. Wow! And then lo and behold, I got the gig. I was like 22 years old. <laughs> so so I, mean, I I was shocked to get the gig. But but you know. That place, uh, Michael's Jazz Club, and then there was the Willow, and then there was a place called the, uh, the Pooh's Pub. Pooh's Pub, and yeah. There was another place called, called 1369. Those places, like the 55 Bar where I play in New York City, a little tiny place, I just, you know, no one's going to get rich playing there, but it's really great to play at places like that where there's very little pressure, and you can just try some new stuff. That's what... A lot of cats used to do, and that's how they learned. They used to be playing all the time. It wasn't, you know, there are just sadly not as many places to play, and people are learning kind of more in front of a computer or play-along things or sometimes playing, well, you know, sometimes they'll get a gig or they'll try to keep a band together and just rehearse, and which is great. All of it's great, but there's nothing like actually doing the gig. So I'm hoping some of those... Little dungy places will uh, will will somehow there'll be a renaissance of those places. But but I, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to Go you ahead, about. Man. Yeah. Is this new CD? Uh, this is a good kind of segue. But this new CD I did with Harvey uh, S. You know Harvey Schwartz. Sure. He changed his name because there was a lot of confusion with some some other bass player about the same spelling and all that stuff. So. He was. He had to change his name just to Harvey S. He simplified it. He's a badass bass player. You know, been playing with everybody. You know, one of those guys that played with Dexter Gordon and all these. Uh, played with. I think he played with uh, Eric Kloss too. I think he played. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So he's played with everybody. And recorded with a bunch of people. And uh, and and, uh, and and Alan Dawson. So Harvey got this gig back in the. He says it's '85 from 1985. I think it was later than that. <laughs> he got a gig maybe later in the '80s, but he got a gig at 1369. He said, "You want to do this? It's with Alan Dawson, who was a famous educator and and drummer. Yeah, and amazing drummer. Yeah. There's some stuff on YouTube with Alan Dawson and Sonny Rollins. Man, it's Ugh. swing." Man. so hard it's hmm. ridiculous so uh so i went up there and i said man i'd love to play with alan and hadn't even i might have met him while i was at Berkeley. probably not you know but knew of him you know because he, he taught tony williams all these people he's kind of legendary and had an amazing book that he wrote and man we hooked up just so good it just was a natural kind of hookup between the three of us and i was playing uh, standards more in those days. So, a couple of originals. There's one original of mine. It was just a blues, kind of an out blues head called Blues uh, for, for, uh, that, that's on this uh, CD. But somebody was in the audience and taped it, you know, and with a with a DAT tape or something, and somehow it really <laughs> sounds good. And, and, uh, that and is so, so great. Man. Harvey rediscovered it. And now it's coming out on uh, High Note Records on t today, actually. Wow. And and you should check it out, man. It's really, it's just one of those things with the trio. For me, I'm personally happy about it because I, I never documented in a live situation 
on the trio stuff that I used to do a lot of. I, I made a record called Standards and other songs that that has that in a studio uh, setting with Al Foster and Jay Anderson was playing bass and, and uh, a couple other cats were on there, badass musicians. But basically, it was a lot of trio playing that I um, that I did on that record. But I've never documented the live stuff, and we used to stretch a lot, you know. And so this has that. Uh, flavor and that and it was a really just one of those gigs that just somehow re was recorded well out you know for, for somehow and it just sounds really good and you know you, you, you'd be shocked at here you know because you wouldn't expect it to sound so good just from a dad taking a microphone when you it, when you listen really back to quality, yeah huh? when you listen back to your playing at that time what you were still pretty wet behind the ears. I mean, what what stands out to you? Man, I was I was actually shocked that it was you know it was there was some stuff there that you know it's amazing that you hear it back in in certain uh, technical things you used to do and, and certain you know I was probably playing more than I would normally play, but the you know more notes than I would normally play now. But, you know, sometimes you added stuff and learn other stuff. Sure. More, you know, but. You know that's the, the amazing thing about music is, is you can be playing at any time once you get to a certain point of, of I guess a, a kind of a, 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 what's the word where you really know the language you know you're fluent in the language yeah, not really know the language but you've become start becoming fluent in the language of whatever you're playing if it's rock blues jazz whatever jazz is more intricate i think uh, of a language but so you become uh, become fluent you used some of those days because of the nature of improvisation even when you're you know just just starting to kind of get a glimpse of the fluency you know you could be playing some stuff you hear back years later and say damn that was a good <laughs> event that was a good moment that was a so this has that like crazy you know and also the main thing that i and I love this about jazz in general is the con you know when you're playing in a group setting is the conversation between musicians so uh, you know so I'm always trying to hook up with a drummer and, and not just in time wise that, that's very you know always a priority for me is try to make it feel good in the in the time but uh, but but uh, but also you know, response-wise, where the drummer kind of responds, or I'll respond to what he's playing, and the bass player, of course. Drummer first, and then bass player. They're, it's like the heart and lungs of the band, you know? The, Absolutely. You know, and so, so that was going on in this setting. It was just like one of those things that didn't matter about my playing particularly. It's like the group, uh, the group conversation, kind of, and the energy. I, want, I just want to. I want to make it clear for the audience. You was Dawson teaching there when you were at Berkeley, and then the first yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then he was still teaching there until until he I think until he passed, or maybe he retired a few. Years and that was the first time you played with him. Was that was the recording? First time, and man, it hooked Whoa, up. Whoa, like, man. Whoa. And I, I turned on my distortion box. You know, I basically <laughs> started off. So, and then as we vamped or something, I would get more and more. You know with the rock and a little bit. And he was right there, man. The Unreal, right there. dude. And Unreal. He had, 
Dawson used to be, you know, suit and tie all the time. And, and there he was with his suit and tie and playing his fucking ass off and smiling and just enjoying. So which I, I said, do you mind if I do, you know, I, we do a little sound check. Sometimes I use this little thing and I turn it up. He said, whichever way you want to go, man. <laughs> and, and he was, man, he was just, he was really, I, you know, it was really, I wish I had gotten an opportunity to do more, but I'm really happy that this is coming out today. I would just... Where, where can people, where can people find it, it? Where can people find it? I guess it's on High Note Records. You can find it, you know, if you, I think it's called High Note. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm terrible at all this stuff, but it's under Harvey's name. It's not under my name. It's Harvey S. It's, uh, it's called Going For It. That's what it's called. It G O, you know, going for it, and uh, uh, it's uh, uh, featuring Mike Stern and Alan Dawson, Harvey S, uh, you know, his bass, and he's the guy that found the recording or found the guy that had recorded it, listened to it, edited it a little bit, and kind of mixed it as much as you can with with uh, a live. You know, there's things you can do, you know, to bring out this instrument or that instrument. It's kind of mastering after the fact but there was not a lot that needed to be done it just came out really sounded good mike i I wanted to just i wanted you to talk about um your perspective on or the idea of how you got comfortable uh there's this old line that normally comes out of maybe the skiffle player scene or the jam band scene but it actually applies to uh to jazz mainly, and and that's never playing the same song the same way once. And I wanted yeah. I wanted you to talk about how you you how you got comfortable tapping into that frequency because that is what the in my mind when I go see live music, when I go see you or Wayne Krantz or whoever, I I don't once you leave the head of the tune it could be any tune. And I just wanted you to talk to younger cats about sort of learning to play beyond what you know. Once you have the rudiments, and then taking off, and really playing yourself, or letting the well, music play you. Know, one one thing I do is I'm always listening and transcribing and checking out different instruments. You know, so mm. I mean everybody repeats certain lines, for instance, but it's literally impossible if you're improvising. Even if you played the same notes, it's impossible to put them in the same place exactly. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. And of course. The goal is to keep it fresh for yourself and for um, and for everybody else. I, I'll tell you one thing, though, uh, and it's important to do that. But at the same time, you, if something occurs to you that occurred to you the first set, you know, you don't want to just make it different for different sake. If it's like there and it's in the flow and, oh, I've you know, you don't say, oh, shit, I can't play that. I played that lick, you know. Right, uh, right. That's. The main thing is that what you play, you put your heart and soul into it. You make it sound like it's the first time you ever played it. Mm. And then the most of the, uh, and, and you go for the most of the uh, vocabulary being different. Like you, you'll, and so the main thing is you gotta, I mean, to me, if you really want to do that, of course, there's ways of doing it with a more limited vocabulary, and then you just leave more space or put the notes in a different rhythm which is another kind of vocabulary. So you might be playing similar notes, like B.B. King, but sometimes it was played just the way he would articulate it. It was different than the other 
down and out, you know, or maybe he went down, you know what I mean? Totally, yeah. He, he didn't have a whole lot of stuff, but it always sounded fresh. So that's that's part of doing uh, stuff like that, uh, you know, uh, not repeating yourself. But the other thing is trying to have, in, in a lot of jazz players, and I, I go for this myself, is to have a, a extensive vocabulary that you're always working on new and finding new ideas and getting inspired by I'm just listening to a Joe Henderson record called Four and it's a live record with Jimmy Cobb and, and well it was the Wynn Kelly trio and Joe was young and playing you know lots of lots of notes killing them I mean amazing amount of vocabulary and and you know I cop some of that stuff and try to put it on the guitar <laughs> yeah I, I love it I love it so you get you get all kinds of different ideas that way or or studying you know, I was studying this guy Charlie Banacas for years, and he, he was had so much vocabulary and so much because he was taking from some classical composition uh, stuff and and putting it into you know jazz improvisation. Well, Joe Henderson was he was Joe Henderson was picking up gigs with with the Motown Cats in Detroit. I mean, he had a bag of he was playing soul mixed with with pretty sophisticated uh, you know jazz, and I just. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, this is a question I have because my my daughters and I we just watched um, one of these um, Miles Davis documentaries, and there's this beautiful picture of you on the bandstand in '81 with Miles. I just wanted you to talk if you even were. I was not aware that in '75 he had a really bad car accident, and uh, and I was wondering, like, he took. Everyone says, oh, he left music, or he. You know, he did everything he needed to do, and then he made this return in 81, but would he have continued on playing if he had not? Because I, I, it seems to me he was pretty, he got pretty addicted to to pills and things like that, and I just wonder uh, if you think that, that during that 75 to 81 period, he would have uh, continued to play if not for this horrible accident on the West Side Highway, I think it was. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think that didn't really clob. I mean, it didn't exactly. I don't think it made him jump up for joy. And I think somehow somebody told me there's a rumor that, and I don't even know. I talked to him about it. Sometimes Miles would hear the rumors and run with him. <laughs> so, but uh, but I think he got shot or something. He had a bad hip. He had a hip uh, replacement. No, he he stopped for about seven years, and then he came. He just got. He said he, music was calling him too hard. You know, it was just, and he was bored, and he was, and I and 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 and, and wanted to still express himself, even though he wasn't in great health at all. And then it got worse, and then it got better again. So uh, he was a strong guy, and then it, then it finally, you know. To, it's, it's just all the stuff that had gone on with him. Uh, can you re can you relate to the the um, like the idea that because like you're still listening to sax players and and you're, you're still trying to find you're like you're never bored of the music. Could you understand where he was coming from? Obviously, he was a, he was an, a total titan. I think I think he was he was always still listening. When I went over there, he was listening. And, and you know, and, and, and Bill Evans, who had, when he was just coming back, he said he was always listening, even mm. even during. Uh, so he wasn't bored of music. He just thought there wasn't, you know, he was um, felt uninspired, I guess. And of course, some of that had to do with health, and some of that had to do with just getting too 
messed up, I guess, with too much too much of this and that. And uh, but finally, music one, you know, that that uh, that pull that he wanted to play music, you know, kind of won out. So he came back, and um, and that happens from time to time. It's it's you know, it's I guess it, it could be kind of who knows, maybe it's some kind of midlife crisis. You know, people have <laughs> shit like that happen. Miles ain't any; he's still human. You know, and just because he's an amazing musician doesn't mean he doesn't have that going on. Totally. And sometimes people just change their stuff up for a while and then come back to it. So anyway, I'm glad he came back because I should certainly love the fact that I got to play with him for so many years. I played with him 81 through, I guess, 83, something like that. So, you know, and then uh, the she started in 80, I'm not sure. And then. And then we, uh, and then he, he called me back. So I went back for about close to a year in 85 or 86, something like that. So, uh, what's the, be- what's yeah. your, what's the, um, the, the, you know, I, I got a chance to see you in Phoenix, but I, you know, you were playing with a bunch of cats that, uh, were a little bit older than you, a little bit younger, but what was the leadership qualities from miles that, that you really have carried through to this day and, What's the most, how strong is that lineage of the music that we've been talking about? Like, because Alan Dawson, uh, the Dizzy, like there was a period of time when you were coming up when all the original masters were still alive. Yeah. So, and, and so I just want you to talk about what gives you hope, because obviously the clubs are an issue, supply and demand is an issue, but I, how strong, I mean, Mike, you're part of that lineage now. As, yeah, an, as an elder well, statesman. Well, I mean, I just, you know, I'm just glad to play. You know, I love to play the guitar. And sure. I love to play jazz, of course. I love to play, every, you know, I, I dig Hendrix at the same time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm into music in general. Totally. My wife does a lot of world music, and she, she uh, that really inspires me. And I'm to, you know, playing with Richard Bona, for instance, uh, somebody like that, I try to put some of what I would normally do in a different setting with us, with him singing and, and playing. And, to, 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 you know, I've had opportunities to just get so inspired by different people that I get a chance to play with. Of course, Randy Brecker, sometimes we play together and that's all with the ball. You know, amazing, such an amazing trumpet player. Um, but, you know, I think, like, first of all, even Dizzy, you know, had his mentors you know i mean he he had his uh, absolutely uh, you know and so so even before then but uh, so it's been going on the world of jazz and of course the world of music's been going on forever and we're still everybody's still inspired by bach you know and that was a bunch of years ago <laughs> and uh, he was amazing you know but um but i i mean i think that uh, first of all, I think music goes in a whole bunch of different directions. You know, you can combine stuff. You can play more straight ahead. You know, I'm just talking about pretty much jazz. Yeah, I did. Yeah, you can combine stuff with with different, you know, different elements. Where you can play more traditional, or you can play really modern, really kind of more out stuff. Whatever, it's all good, and it's all going in a bunch of different directions at once. And so, and I think that's wonderful i don't think that's ever gonna stop i mean jazz is kind of like poetry in some ways explain that explain that this is great yeah poetry is is wonderful and and it's a it's a wonderful art form it's not the kind of thing that most people will delve into and love uh you know you have to be a certain kind of 
person to kind of get into some of, especially like deep. The deeper it gets, I guess it's more it's more difficult to wrap your brain around. You know, T. S. Eliot is not going to be a, a you know it says you know in Oklahoma or something they ain't going to be quoting from T. S. Eliot. I mean, maybe some people, yeah. but it's it's a few it's a it's few and far between. So. And that's kind of what to where jazz is in some regards, but but uh, it's also you know Miles had this great way of balancing what he wanted to play and reaching an audience. That balance is it was amazing. It kept him warm. I mean, the music was always warm, even if it was far out. There was some kind of thing in the bottom, like a bass would stay the same. And then bitches brew, you know, all those cats would be playing all kinds of stuff at once. Exactly. And and and, and the bass would be the anchor. You know what I mean? Or something would just anchor it. So, uh, so or it would go out and then come back. You know, and and, and, and kind of play. So he had a way of of kind of reaching, being aware that he wanted to communicate his stuff with other people. So it's a great balance because it, it made him kind of disciplined in a way in a very loose way about how to how to uh, you know how to reach people and get them to kind of you know dig the music dig it know? and and make it i mean make it relatable to yeah to, and, but but still make it hip you know when you think of some of that stuff it's it's pretty out there it's out, you know it's, I mean? out. It's, sometimes it's really there's a lot of uh, really complicated solos not uh, from miles of course too I mean, but less so you know he was such a singer on the instrument that uh, but he he could play some really out kind of lines and, and uh, pretty amazing stuff and, and it was always just but the feel was always there so right away we concentrate on that and the attitude that he wanted and part of the attitude was uh, I guess the way he would explain the attitude that to me he was meaning that's what he wanted to, to get across to whoever. If they don't know anything about music, they want, he wanted that kind of feeling. S- get, oh, it's, it's you know the one final question, Mike, and set one. We're I, I'd love to do part two down the road, but I just yeah. um, so when I interviewed Joe Chambers, the drummer, he it was, he told me something pretty revelatory. Considering I was born in '78, um, he said that that Stanley Crouch, the great, the writer said to him that the real free music, free jazz period was actually the blue note stuff that Andrew Hill was doing and uh, Joe Henderson and Bobby Hutcherson, the mid sixties. And what he said was, and I want to just get your opinion about this is that, and just for younger cats who are searching for individual sound, he said that like they were, they knew about Albert Eiler and Archie Shep and they would hear them playing uh, a lot of anguished cries, the lineage of the the field calls, but it they they didn't respect them at that time because because they couldn't play changes, they could not back up a singer, and they couldn't keep a gig. And what Stanley was saying, Crouch was basically saying, is that the, the that Blue Note period from the mid '60s had tradition in it. It had extensions in it. It had it. it they played through changes. So that and I and I just wanted you to talk about Eiler and Shep because a lot of cats would say they were just squeaking and squawking and they weren't really able to hold a gig and I just 
I found that revelatory. It's not music that I'm going to turn to. I'm going to turn to Vince Guaraldi and a drummerless trio before that. But I just wanted you to talk about the validity of playing urgent soul music, even if there's no, even if it's so free that you can't detect what the song is or et cetera, et cetera. You know what? The one, one uh, I think I, and I think I actually saw the quote actually on YouTube because somebody, I think Terry Lynn Carrington told me that, uh, and then I saw it uh, uh, from Duke Ellington, and he said, um, he said they asked him what 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 is jazz, and he said jazz is freedom of expression. Mm-hmm. That's all. That's all he said. No, <laughs> no judgment. No jazz is freedom of expression. All that's cool. You know, if, if it's not your priority, if you can't get it, maybe one of these days, I used to hate sweet potatoes, and now I love them. <laughs> so, you know, when I was a kid, I couldn't stand that stuff. And now, so... Uh, Acquired taste, know, you yeah. You never know what's going what's gonna, to, you know, or how you can hear certain uh, energy, uh, a certain kind of... And, and there's passion behind a lot of that stuff. It's Sometimes it's up to the listener to find it. Uh, a lot of times it's up to the listener to find it. So... Uh, so, so, uh, all of it's good. My, you know, we all have our priorities. I'm kind of more in the middle of what, you know, I like stuff to, I like Hendrix. He did a lot of squeaking and squawking. He certainly did. He certainly did. Some great sounds, but my, you know, my favorite stuff is probably a little bit more in the middle. I'm a big Bill Evans, you know, well, both of them. I, I play with Bill Evans, the saxophone player. We were in the band with Miles together. He's amazing. But, you know, I'm talking about Bill Evans, the, the piano player. Of course. And I'm a big uh, uh, West Montgomery fan, you know. It's kind of stuff that's in the middle. Of course, Miles and all his extensions of stuff. But he always kept it. Uh, I think the difference between him and some of those other, uh, you know, other players is, is that he well first of all he he was very uh he dizzy was his main man so and dizzy had a lot of incisive like you know precise sort of things about playing over changes he was really good at that and miles got very into that too and uh but but then he got sometimes it got further and further looser <laughs> but he would still manage to keep it in the middle also, he would be able to reach people that, okay, they're not, they don't like really out, totally really out stuff. But here's a sampling of it from Miles Davis, but something in there was right down the middle. I you know, the dude, I love the, this, dude. I mean, I mean, do you, it, in your live performances, are there times where, where you might not, like, to me, the unpredictability of his sets were key. Like he might not play a solo on a tune. Like, do you, do you... Oh man, it was so, it was moment by moment. <laughs> he, he wanted it that way. If it got too tight. And I like sometimes predictability because within that, then you can, you know, like, sure. playing a, like train would play with a, this amazing band with, you know, with McCoy and you know what I mean? And, and, oh. and, uh, and, 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 uh, yeah, you know, that, that's, that it's a different kind. You no, know, but I mean, within that, but within that, went, predict- yeah, he would go totally out. You know, sometimes and it got more and more. You know, like that. But uh, you know, when, when he was doing that stuff with uh, Dolphy, I guess, right? Yep. With, uh, yeah, and so 
Oh, it got it got more and more out, but but it was uh, he, but it was a kind of a form. It was a general plan. Sometimes Miles stuff, it was really loose the plan, and when it got a little too solid, he changed it up, <laughs> you know? and all of a sudden throw throw a monkey wrench in the hole. You know, just some kind of weird uh, yeah. thing in the middle of the whole thing, just right in the middle of it, just to surprise everybody and keep everybody on their toes. It seemed like. And, uh, Let me ask you: Do you think do you think that that the Duke Ellington line is freedom of expression in, but in the moment, honest in the moment, freedom of expression, not a for, not a, a thing where you have the set list created, but the idea that you can in the like because you had with Miles, you had to be on your toes, and that kept you totally present. I think Duke just said, in whatever it is, it doesn't have to, you know, it could be in the moment or it could be something rehearsed. Sure. And behind a great singer, uh, you know, I mean, some, that's, uh, you know, every time you sing, you're improvising. You know, the thing is, people improvise all the time. Sure. We are improvising now. Absolutely. We are in the English language, and we're having an idea, and you have a question, and you're not thinking, we think that, let me see, verb conjugation spelling. You just, it just comes out. Riffing, like, yeah. I understand it. You could say it three or four different ways. You know? And you could say, okay, well, let me try. Uh, let me explain it more what I'm trying to ask. You know what I mean? You could rephrase. And uh, that's what happens when, when we, that's the art of improvisation in some ways. And then you usually have a, uh, in, in, you know, a, a some kind of, uh, loose or sometimes not so loose uh, uh, subject matter. You know what I mean? Like, for instance, the subject matter for musicians might be the standard that you plan. So you try to say, okay, well, let me take bits of the, you know, some people think like that. I, I like to think like this. You take bits of the melody of the tune and you make sure you don't get too far away from that, at least for a while. So you you're just you're 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 quoting from the tune. You have the feel exactly, of the tune. exactly. You know, that kind of thing. So you're you're talking you know, with and, and in a group. You're really kind of that's the that's the the group uh, subject for the day. You know what I mean? And you're and you're playing for the for the for the ten minutes that you're playing over a standard. And so uh, and then that can get looser and looser and. Or whatever tune you're playing, whatever music you're playing, whatever vibe you want to convey. So uh, you know, so it's it's a it's a, an amazing kind of uh, just a, 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 an amazing kind of uh, endless, uh, uh, you know, as you said before, you know, just a voyage. It's a journey. I mean, you don't even come close. <laughs> I mean, music in general, you don't even come close to perfecting. But all of it's good. I mean, even if it's rehearsed and Barbra Streisand or something, or like, uh, you know, my manager is actually, his, his father was Billy Eckstein. Really? His name is Guy Eckstein. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah, and, and Bill, you know, that was more songs and singing. Sure. And Frank Sinatra, Miles told me he got a lot of the phrasing from Frank. It doesn't and surprise me, man. Up, that doesn't surprise me at all. Stuff from Bill, uh, from from Billy Eckstein too, because he played in Billy Eckstein's band. So he, he, you know, he he had a lot of singing in his horn. So he listened to a lot of singers for sure. I remember one time I, before I was went to Berkeley and before I kind of got into jazz, but I went heard Roberta Flack because she used to play in Washington D.C. where I grew up, 
And somebody said Miles came down there, uh, you know, a week before, and he just said it was one of a lot of people in the club. It was called Mr. Henry's, a little jazz club. And there she was, piano singing. She, she looked so fine. She was really mm. slim in those days, and just, but amazing singing. And yeah, he came in. He used to listen to singers all the time to get get ideas from that. So, so. You know, it doesn't always have to be the spontaneous improvisation thing. That's one thing. But it can also just be a planned out, uh, beautiful, you know, jazz tune or rock tune or whatever. That's all good, too. You know, with maybe a little bit of soloing in there. Maybe not. My my preference, of course, is to, you know, what I'd love to do is jam, basically. Absolutely. You know, Mike's it, this it, is just jam. But see, that's the funny. See, that's where you need a big bag of tunes and the ability to to lose yourself because jamming you don't there's a there's a fine line between jamming and wanking it and that's the thing that's that separates the real masters from it is really to me to me i think i think it's all good like i said it's all good but to me i i would tend to uh i don't want to take away from anybody's doing something else because sometimes i might not understand it but i I think it's important to to have the discipline of all, you know, learning the stuff, really doing, uh, I think Schofield said this time, if you want to learn how to play jazz, you got to do the time. It sounds like <laughs> you want to jam, but it really is. Yeah. It takes a lot. you got to be in a fucking cave. Oh, you got to be crazy to learn, to learn <laughs> a little bit, have you really crazy in love with this stuff, to, 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 to spend the time to learn all the, you know, to begin to learn all the amazing, I mean, you could do it for years and years and you won't even come close, but you can learn a hell of a lot, but you have to spend hours and hours doing it. I prefer that, those kind of players, and, and where it's uh, where it's really, um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, intelligence, like the way Train would play out, it was always over harmony that he'd already, he was playing over chords, it was very incisive. You know, Miles was uh, in between. He definitely had that, and he also had just instinct. Sometimes he'd go for a note. So sometimes, you know, some of that other stuff is is can be, even though it's too out, uh, you know, and not disciplined by, like you talk about some guys that squeak and squawk more than anything else. Sometimes that can actually inspire somebody else's music who's inside and maybe needs a little bit more of that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you just kinda I think it's all good at the end of the day. Music is all good. We we need to complain about Donald Trump or you know Absolutely. I mean that's voting. that's a I just I was on the yeah. voting laws. <laughs> that kind of shit. Uh, well, we need to complain about that. Well, no, but I think that I think that that you know when I when I interview Paul Jackson, rest in peace, and Mike Clark. I mean, they were playing at Black Panther rallies with Angela Davis. I mean, music is a huge component to social resist to social change, and it's not there right now. You know, it's there. It's there. I mean, it's just not, not alongside. You know, but I just before I let you go, did you wind up? at the one step down or the et cetera ever sitting in with Freddie Hubbard when you were a kid, was there ever a seminal moment of on the bandstand in DC before you got to Berkeley? No, not really in Washington, more rock bands and blues bands and, and not so much playing. I'm, I, I was doing gigs, but not so much jazz stuff. Um, you were doing blues. Uh, so I met, I met, uh, you know, Roy Buchanan. Oh. And, uh, had his guitar and got ripped off in Boston, unfortunately. And I got that from Danny Gap. 
Danny, Danny got Roy's old guitar. They were tight. And Roy sold him one guitar, and Danny, it was Danny's Spare. It was an amazing telecast. Oh, my God. And, and then in Boston, a few years later, somebody ripped me off with a gun. So I said, well, he had a persuasive argument. <laughs> so I had to give it up. But uh, really sad to do that. But, you know, then, then you know, somebody else made a copy of that. I was using that for a while. And uh, Yamaha made a copy of that, that, that copy. So it's a copy of a copy that I play now. But it's a good, really solid guitar. And they wanted to do a Mike Stern model guitar. So I didn't want to turn them down. That's for sure. And uh, so, but... Um, but you know, uh, more 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 blues based. Not you never wound up. Did you go see Freddie or Cannonball or those cats? I yeah, I used to listen to, to you know, going to hear something Cannon. I remember seeing uh, Delvin. Oh, was man in DC, and yeah, I used to do that. But and I got more into it because my mom was really into it. And she used to play those records. I try to play along with them in my room, and then I started studying more because they kicked my ass. <laughs> so I could do the rock records and blues records, but not so much for jazz records. So that's anyway. So. Uh, yeah, no. Man, let's 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 put let's put a let's put a wrap on it, man. I'd love to do set two down the road, man. All right, beautiful. All right, man. Thank. I'm glad we finally hooked it up, man. Thanks, brother. Hey, man. Good hang. I'll get this out later, and uh, I look forward. To, and if by the way, I would love to get a copy of Niche. I've never seen that record, man. Do you have a, a co any? CD? I don't have any copies either. They re-released it. I'm not sure about the sound of that record. Victor Lewis on drums, though. How could that go wrong with Stern? You know. Okay, yeah, he, we used to play this all the time at the 55 bar, too, even back then. You know, I've been playing there off and on for years. So whenever I'm not on the road, I played that place. So I'm playing there next week. At the, and it's a little tiny club. We played a lot with Vic, with Victor. But, uh, no, um... Uh, yeah, I'll figure it out. I just, you know, I'd like to come see you play soon. I, I'm check, out the, check out the other one, man. I really want you to hear this new one. Dude, I'm going to check it out right now. High Note Records uh, is... Uh, I think I think of it, unless I got it wrong, but you'll see. It's just Harvey S. and it's called Going For It, and it's out today. So uh, yeah, yeah right. definitely check it out because I think you know Alan Dawson. I mean, just to hear him tear it up, you know, is worth worth everything. Were there any? Then, did you have any rehearsals or just hit it hit it live? Just hit it. I love yeah. this stuff, dude. I'm going to get it right now. Mike, bless you, man. Right, Take care, man. Uh, Later. All the best, man. Talk to you. Talk, Talk to you soon. soon. All right, man. Peace, Thank man. You. Later, dude. Take care, bro. Bye, man.